I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 16. And of course, this is part of our ongoing series where we are looking at the vision of the church. And every week we are picking a different biblical text, examining that text that unfolds one of the values of our vision. And that vision, by now I suspect you can almost repeat it with me, that vision is that we believe that we can transform, the, uh, uh, rather we want to transform the town of Flower Mount with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we said that that is a gospel that brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice in a biblical form as we talked about last week, social justice and cultural renewal, not just in our town, but we believe throughout all of the Metroplex, the state of Texas, the United States, and yes, even to the ends of the earth. And as we've been looking at these different values for the last few weeks, we've been dealing with the value of service, service to others. And we said that that value uh, the idea of service is one of living out the gospel, of expressing the gospel. And what we've seen in the weeks past is that that is to be the, uh, that's expressed in our love to God. Our love to God is how we serve. But of course, we don't have to show that service to God in doing things for Him. He doesn't need anything. Rather, our love to God is actually expressed in our service to our neighbor. And as we've seen, who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is any person whom God brings across our path who needs our help. One of the things that we've been learning along with that then is that when we talk about this gospel being lived out, it is the gospel of word and deed. It is the declaring of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is then followed up with acts of mercy and kindness that really do demonstrate the reality of the gospel in our hearts. And as we saw, these are not random acts of kindness like those bumper stickers say, but very much deliberate and measured steps of showing mercy and justice to those around us. We saw a few weeks back, even though it wasn't part of this vision series, but it dovetailed so nicely when we ordained both an elder and a deacon, that the officers of the church, elders and deacons, are called to this ministry of word and deed. The elders primarily exercising the ministry of the word, the deacons primarily exercising the ministry of deed. And they lead us in this, but that doesn't mean that they are the sole ones who do word and deed. All of us as a church are being called to the ministry of word and deed. It was Jesus' ministry while he was on this earth. When he ascended into heaven, the book of Acts reminds us that he continues that ministry of word and deed through his church, that is, through us. And what we're going to see today out of Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 16, is that all of us in the church, all the members of the one body, of which we read in 1 Corinthians 12, have been gifted by the Spirit in order to do that work of ministry. Now, whenever we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, immediately, ears perk up because there's been a lot of focus, especially in certain uh, uh, sectors of the church, on the gifts of the Spirit. Some people have been totally consumed by the idea of gifts. Others have almost completely ignored it. So we're going to be looking at it and hopefully putting it in its proper balance. Now, uh, we're not going to be focusing on any particular gifts. You know, we won't be talking about the gift of faith or the gift of teaching or the gift of helps or the gift of giving or the gift of tongues or anything of that nature. Rather, our focus this morning will be on who gives the gifts and what is the goal of having them. Who is, who gives the gifts 
And what is the goal of having them? So that's what we're going to get from Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. So let's turn there. And if you'll allow me for context, let's start reading in verse 1. And we'll read all the way through verse 16. The apostle says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, that is, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it is preached to us this morning. So you can see now why I had us read the first six verses. You remember that we actually looked at uh, verses 1 through 6 earlier in this series when we talked about the unity that we are to have as God's people. And now, now that really steps into what we're going to discuss today, because even in verses 7 through 16, we'll still be looking at that unity, but we're going to see that unity expressed in the diversity of gifts that are given. So as we look at the passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the giving of gifts the goal of gifts, and the giver of gifts. The giving of gifts, gifts, the goal of gifts, and the giver of gifts. So let's begin with our first point, the giving of gifts, of gifts and the primary focus will be on verses 7 and 11. But before we turn to those two, let's very briefly review what we did learn when we looked at verses 1 through 6. We saw in verse 3 that the Apostle Paul is maintaining God's people, calling us, to maintain unity. And in verses 4 through 6, he reminded us that the basis for our unity, the reason that we can say we are one, doesn't have to do with the fact that we all share one ethnicity or that we are all of one geography or that we're all of one age. It doesn't matter. It's not that we're one because we're all white or we're all Asian or we're all Hispanic or because we're all in this stage of life or in that stage of life or because we're all American or we're all Southerners or whatever the case may be. That is not what brings us together. What we've seen here clearly that what brings us together is in verse 6, first and foremost, the unity of God. There is one God. He is one. And then in verse 5, our relationship to that God. Because God is one and we are in union through Jesus Christ, we too become one. And as we read earlier from Colossians and see even in this book earlier in chapter 1, 
Christ is the head of the one body, the church. And so our unity ultimately has to do because we have experienced the redemption of Jesus Christ. He has laid his love upon us, brought us into union with himself. We are connected with the God who is one, and we too become one. However, that unity of which we see spoken about here in verses 1 through 6, that unity does not mean bland uniformity. It does not mean that we're all drones, we're all copies one of another exactly alike. Rather, that unity is expressed through the diversity of spiritual gifts. It's actually expressed through the diversity of many other things. We do have a diversity of ethnicity and geography and uh, what else did I say, age and all those things. But in this passage in particular, we see that the unity, the point that Paul is making as he transitions from verses 1 through 6 to 7 and following, that unity is expressed through the diversity of spiritual gifts that are given to God's people. Look at verse 7. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, you notice that that word but is there. It starts off with that. After he's, and this is the point he wants to make, it's a contrast. After saying in verses 5 through 6, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, there's this unity, but, but, not that that unity is fractured, but we're going to now see how that unity expresses itself in this diversity of gifts. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now take that last word, gift, It's the word that you would imagine means exactly what you think it means. It's the word that would translate in another context to the word present. If somebody has a birthday, you give them a birthday present. You give them a gift, something that you had, that you purchased, or that you acquired, and that you then give to this person. So that's one word here, but there's another word at the beginning of verse 7. It's the word grace. Now, this is a word that is really loaded in the way that Paul uses it. It's the word charis in the Greek language. I'm going to say that just because I think, I think it's important, as you'll see in a moment. When we think of grace, what do we think of? We think of unmerited favor. That's what the word means, unmerited favor. You have been shown favor that you did not deserve. In particular, the way it's being used here, and most everywhere, actually, where Paul uses it, the word charis is from where we get the word charismatic or the charisma. There are sectors of the church that refer to themselves as charismatic Christians, focusing on the gifts. And that's because the word here means a special gift, a spiritual gift that you have been given, but which you did not deserve, which was unmerited. You did nothing for this gift to be given to you, and yet it is a special gift, a spiritual gift that God gives us. And when we understand that nature of the gifts, I mean, the very word gift already tells you it's something that's been given to you. You didn't gin it up on your own. It helps to avoid some of the errors that exist. We have to, we have to start with that recognition that the giving of spiritual gifts has nothing to do with your ability. It has nothing to do even with your faith. There are some folks within the church that teach that if you only had enough faith or more faith, you would be given certain gifts. And this makes absolutely clear that is not the case. This is purely unmerited favor given to us. Christ gives us this gift. And when we understand that, it avoids two errors that exist. The first one is the one where we overestimate our own importance and give ourselves credit 
for the gifts that God has given us. But the very words being used here, grace, unmerited favor, a special gift that demolishes any idea where we give ourselves credit. But it also helps to avoid the second error, which is those in the church who feel themselves less endowed with gifts might become discouraged. I'm not like that person who has all these wonderful gifts that we see in the church. You should not become discouraged because it tells us to each one of us, grace was given. Each, not to some of us, but to each one of us, grace has been given. So every believer, every one of God's people has been gifted by the Holy Spirit. We read that 1 Corinthians 12 passage and it said, well, you know, some gifts are the more uh, predominant ones. You know, you can see the eyes, you can see the ears. Then there are some, you know, members of the body which are more modest and we cover them over. And when we cover them, we're actually giving them honor in their own way. And so there are the more modest gifts and there are perhaps the more flashy gifts, but God has given gifts to all of us. And it's according to his desire, to his uh, choosing. It has nothing to do with our own abilities. Now, there are other passages in Scripture that talk broadly about the gifts. You can look at 1 Corinthians 12 that we were reading, and you could have continued on in that. We only read a portion of it. You can look at Romans 14. You can look at 1 Peter 4. And they'll discuss, you know, the gifts of preaching and teaching, the gift of help, the gift uh, which is service, uh, gifts of, uh, of giving, the gift of faith, gift of hospitality, and, you know, and so on and so on. Paul really, for the most part here, focuses on a very, very narrow band of gifts that really has to do with four groups, and he describes them here for us in verse 11. He speaks of the apostles as one group, the prophets as another, evangelists as the third, and then finally as the fourth are pastor-teachers. Let me look at those just very briefly so we can understand who they are. Uh, The apostles and the prophets. The apostles are those in the New Testament time who were given the Word of God. The Word of God was revealed to them. In fact, they saw the living Word of God, Jesus himself. The prophets are those then during the Old Testament times who also received revelation, who also received the Word of God. So apostles and prophets both receive revelation about who God is and what he's doing for us. Now, if we were to turn back a couple of chapters in Ephesians to Ephesians 2.20, we see Paul making a very, very important point about apostles and prophets. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he uses the metaphor of a house and says that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation The apostles and the prophets, of course, doesn't mean that the church is built literally on these people, but on the revelation that they received, the word of God that they received. Jesus himself is the cornerstone because he is the supreme prophet, the supreme giver of the word of God. In fact, he is the living word of God. The interesting thing to see here is that the apostles and prophets are one time, Just like a foundation is unrepeatable, you don't have multiple foundations in your home, right? You only have one, then you build on it. And you can build all sorts of things and superstructures. You can take out windows and you can put in this and that. But the foundation remains unrepeated. Likewise, there will not be any more apostles. There will not be any more prophets. There will not be any more fresh revelation from God. God has said, this is sufficient for us. And it is. 
So we have the singular foundation of the apostles and prophets who have been given to us as a gift because they received the word of God. Next, going back to verse 11, we have the evangelists. These are not on the same level as apostles and prophets. These are the traveling missionaries. These are the ones who take the word of God that has now been given and inscripturated, and they take it out to the world that does not know Christ, and they share the good news. And as people respond to the gospel and come into faith in Christ, they become members of the church, and then you get the last category given here, shepherds and teachers. And without going into a grammar lesson in the Greek language, this is written in such a way so that shepherds and teachers are not two different offices. It's actually referring to one group, but two different functions. And it's very, very clear in English. It's not as clear. uh, I'm sorry, very, very clear in Greek, not as clear in English. So it really, as your footnote says in the ESV, it's shepherd-teacher, this, this, this group that we today call pastors who both teach and shepherd God's people. And so you've got the, the apostles and the prophets, the word of God comes to them, fresh, new revelation, and they write it down. The evangelists take that word out to a world that needs to hear the good news, and as people come to Christ, the normal, regular office of the pastor, the shepherd and the teacher, comes to help grow those people and build up the church. So these are the gifts that are being given that Paul wants to focus on in this passage. And what's interesting is that these gifts are not in the abstract as they are in other passages, talking about gift of helps or gift of faith, but it is, in fact, a list of persons. And very particular, it's a list of persons who all have to do with the Word. They are all ministers of the Word, And we can't pass that up. We live in an anti-intellectual age. The evangelical church wants to move away to experience, to emotion, to uh, entertainment, uh, all those, the three E's. Hey, I got something there. Uh, But those three things is where the focus has gone in the church and not to the word. It is the word that you see being given through these men, being given, being taken out, being applied. And it is on that that then the church is to be built up. So it's very interesting from verse 11 then where he lists these ministers of the word as the gifts of God. He then goes to verse 12 and we see a very interesting dynamic between those who are the ministers of the word and the people of God. Let's take a look at that. We'll read verse 11 and 12. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So now we see that important dynamic. The pastors, the ministers of the word, are given to us to equip us for service so that we build up the body of Christ. It's interesting. It it, it helps us to see the reason that they're given is to equip us, the saints, for the work of ministry. They don't do it all. We do the work of ministry. They're giving Uh, uh, given so that we can be equipped for that work of ministry with the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So that's the dynamic that we see here, the entire congregation serving together to build one another up. And so it's very clear then if you look at something like verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's very clear that every part of the body is expected to contribute to ministry. Every part of the body is necessary for ministry, as we saw when we read 1 Corinthians 12 early. 
earlier. So each and every one of us will be gifted differently, but every one of us is necessary to do the work of ministry for building one another up. And when we understand that, we can avoid one of the two extremes to which churches often fall into, and that is the idea of the all pastor or all people. The all pastor extreme, which I actually talked about back when we looked at 1 Timothy 4, can be um, um, symbolized for us with what I call the bus model, the idea that the church is a bus, and everybody's sitting in the back asleep while the pastor drives the bus. He does all the driving, he steers, he does all the work. All the people just go along for the ride. But what this passage so clearly teaches us is that the pastor is not a ministry monopolizer, but the pastor is a ministry multiplier. The pastors, the ministers of the word, are given to us to take that word and apply it to equip you all the saints so that you go out and do the work of ministry. And can you imagine? 70 people, 150 people, 200 people, 1,000 people can do much more ministry than just one man. So that's the first error that we avoid when we see this all pastor, but it also helps us to avoid that other error, which is becoming more and more common in the evangelical church of all people, where they recognize that the people are called to do ministry, and then they set aside the place and the role for the shepherd teachers. Hey, we're going to do it all. We do not need pastors. And yet it's very clear here. The pastors are given to us to do the ministry of the word. They need to be there to teach and to train us. They have been gifted for that particularly. They've also been trained, uh, uh, equipped, rather, they've been gifted to be shepherds, to rule over us so that the ministry can go forward effectively and orderly. So what Paul is doing here as we look at this first section is he's establishing the proper role of both people and pastor. Pastors equip the people so that the people together do the work of service. And to that end, the Spirit has given gifts to each and every one of us. So that's the giving of the gifts. There's a second thing we want to see in this passage, and that is the goal of gifts. Why are they given in the end? We're going to find that in verses 12 through 14. The reason it's so important to understand the goal is so you know what to do with them. There are some in the church who have been so consumed with gifts, in particular, one particular set of gifts, that the gifts become the end, not the means. It's all about getting that gift, getting the gift of preaching or maybe the gift of faith. And, of course, the section of the church I'm talking about has put this incredible focus on the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. It's rather interesting. We don't have time to get into it today, but if you read 1 Corinthians 12 and go on through 13 and 14, that whole section Paul deals with it, he is chastising the Corinthian church for putting the emphasis on pursuing the gifts as an end to themselves. And he particularly says that the gift of tongues is not the primary gift to pursue, but rather that of the preaching of the gospel. And yet whole sections of the church have read that section and said, speaking in tongues, that sounds exciting. I want that too. And you're like, oy vey. You know, we have to be able to have this balanced. Paul says, do not be consumed by them to the point where the gift becomes the means. Because then you can't really see what they were for. By the same token, there are some uh, sectors of the church that have so reacted against some of our charismatic, and they use that term, charismatic brothers and sisters in the Pentecostal arm of the church, that then they ignore the gifts. Well, then you can't, if you ignore them, you can't accomplish the goal for which God intended them. So let's look at the goal. It's a very clear goal. And now it's in verse 13. So again, look at verse 11. He gives the gifts. 
flowing into verse 12 for our for our good, and then 13, the, the reason, the goal. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all, and here's the goal, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what are we shooting for? We want to achieve a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So there's this unity theme again. And what is this that we're to be united in? Two things. And they're very vitally important. That's why Paul includes them. The first thing is the unity of the faith. Now, when he talks about the faith, it doesn't mean your act of believing, but rather the faith as in what we believe. What is it that we believe about who God is? What is it that we believe about what he has done for us in Christ? We are to be unified in what we believe. What we believe matters. It's not irrelevant. Paul puts it at the very center of how we have our unity. And then he says, not only that, unity in the knowledge of the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, knowledge here does not simply mean knowing about. Like you just simply learned about that, because that would be part of the faith, the things that we believe. And that includes the Son. The word knowledge here being used is the same one that you see elsewhere in Scripture that points to a very deep and intimate relationship. So, for example, when you read very early on in in the book of Genesis that Adam knew Eve, it doesn't mean that Adam recognized her and said, oh, yeah, that's the girl. It, it, It means, as you know, that they had sexual relations and she gave birth to a son. It's that level of deep and intimate relationship. So what Paul is saying is that the goal, going back to verse 13, the goal for us in being built up as we minister to one another, each one of us using our gifts, is so we can all attain to a unity of what we believe and of our intimate and deep relationship with Christ. You need both. It's what you know and how it then plays out in our relationship with Jesus. That is what we're shooting for. And Paul goes on to say, how do you know? How do you know that you've arrived there? What is the standard by which I can measure? Because if that's the goal, we need a yardstick. And we can hold that yardstick up and say, you're halfway there, you're three-quarters of the way there, you're full. What do we know? And he tells us that the way we can tell is by using the standard of Jesus Jesus himself. He uses this, this, this metaphor of growing up to mature manhood, to the measure of the status of the fullness of Christ. He's telling us that this is a process. None of us here, none of us here arrives at the unity of faith or the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God in one shot. It's a process. We mature into it just as we grow up bodily, so we grow spiritually. And what we're shooting for is a mature, a mature spiritual faith measured, he says here, by the stature of the fullness of Christ. Or as I like the way the Revised English Bible puts it, It's a mature manhood measured by nothing less than the full stature of Christ. We know then that we've arrived when we can say that we are just like Jesus. And the scripture tells us that we are being conformed to the image of the Son of God. So that's why we've been gifted, to work with one another, to build one another up. And our goal is to make each and every one of us more and more like our Savior, like Christ. That's the goal of these gifts. That's why he says, putting it in negative terms in verse 14, that we are to no longer be children, but to spiritually mature. And what do we know is that maturity, our measuring stick? Jesus. 
He is the gold standard. So what a wonderful thing. When we can arrive to that level of maturity, and we know we never arrive fully in this life, but if we are moving in that direction, building one another up to that kind of maturity, that brings a unity in the church that just doesn't fracture very easily. That's a unity that is strong. That's a unity that is resilient. That's a unity that is powerful. And when all the different winds of doctrine come along, as we read about in verse 14, comes along, it's not going to sway us this way or that way. We can stand firm. And that, before I move on, lets me make a very important point. And this is an important one, as I said earlier. We live in an anti-intellectual climate, our culture, and that has affected the church, where we no longer think we want to feel more than anything else. But if you've noticed all throughout this, what really defines our unity, the gifts that have been given are these these men, these officers who are called to the ministry of the word. The things that we are to unite around is the faith, the things that we believe. We see again and again this emphasis on what it is that we believe and what it is that God has done for us, who God is and what God has done for us. We even saw it in the earlier verses, the ones that we're not covering so much today, but uh, verses 5 through 6. You know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's It's... This unity of who God is and what God has done for us in Christ that brings us together. And we have a word for that. We call it doctrine. Doctrine is nothing other than the unfolding of what the Scripture reveals about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And Paul is saying it's very important that this become what we unite around. It's what makes us unified. Now, we tend to think, no, that's not the way it is. Uh, the way it is. Uh, there's something else that should unite us, maybe service or maybe other things. But no, it is the truth of who God is that brings us together. That's why these ministers of the word have been given to us. That's why verse 14 reads and says, so that we may no longer be children, immature, immature in that unity, immature in that faith, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we have to be built up in the word. This is so important. Why, uh, uh, Parents, you need to be raising your children to nurture and admonition of the Lord, taking them to the word. It's why we, in our church, we don't, I mean, we have we do some fun things. Men's grill night coming on, on Thursday. Uh, that's wonderful. We all get to, the guys get to hang out. The ladies had their ladies night uh, last week and and other things of that nature that we do, and that's wonderful. But in the end, what has to bring us together in this church and in the church is the Word of God. As that Word of God is brought to us by our shepherd teachers, it's applied to us so that we can all together grow up in the knowledge of who God is and what He has done for us. That's very clear in this passage. Doctrine is important. It's referring to doctrinal truth, all in the context of growing up in Christ. Now, how do we handle that doctrinal truth? That's the next thing that Paul talks about in verse 15. And it's vitally important. But before we look at that, let me just tell you a story. Some of you know the comedian Emo Phillips. He's from a generation past. He's a lot of fun. And uh, some of his uh, humor maybe uh, uses things that are no longer uh, relevant or, or in our generation. So if you can put on your, your 80s and 90s hats, some of this stuff makes sense. But he has a fascinating uh, story that he tells. Uh, and this is probably some 30 years old. But he says, I was in San Francisco once walking along the Golden Gate Bridge, and I saw this guy in the bridge about to jump. 
So I thought I'd try to stall and detain him long enough for me to put the film in. I said, don't jump. And he turns and said, and I said to him, why the long face? And he said, my life's a ruin. Nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. He said, I do believe in God. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He says, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. I say, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. I say, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. <laughs> uh, it's a great story. But it just shows us that when we share certain things, it brings us together. We unite around our doctrine. Look at our neighbors next door in the mosque. They are our neighbors. They are our friends. But what separates us is not age. It's not ethnicity. What separates us is that they do not believe the same things about who God is. They do not believe the same things about what God has done in Jesus. And what the Emo Phillips story tells us is we have to unite around doctrine, but we also have to unite around doctrine in love. And Paul makes that so clear in verse 15. He says that we are to speak the truth in love. He calls us in verse 16 to build one another up in love. You remember at the beginning of the passage, the beginning of this section in verses 2 and 3, Paul says that we are to maintain unity in love. Love brackets the passage. It's at the beginning of the passage. It is at the end of the passage, and that's because it is absolutely central to how we build one another up. We're to speak to truth in love. That's the balance that we have to achieve. Truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. But love becomes squishy soft if it's not hardened by truth. Both of those need to be together. And once we begin to understand what Paul is saying, that we have been gifted all individually to build one another up, to do the work of ministry, ultimately that work of ministry is to grow us up in Christ, measured by Christ himself. How do you know who Christ is? How do you know what he's done for us? Because we unify around doctrine. As the scripture teaches us who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. That's what we need. Once you understand that, you can dispel this common falsehood that you hear all the time, that people say, doctrine divides, doctrine divides, service unites, and that's just rubbish. Doctrine unites us, Paul says. It does divide in the sense that if those don't hold to the same doctrine, but you can't even be united in service because you don't know what to do or who to serve. It is doctrine that brings us together. 
Well, people of God, as we begin to wrap this up, there's one last thing so important to look at. We've seen that we have been given the gifts. We've seen what the goal of these gifts are. It's so vitally important that we now look at the giver of the gifts. And Paul speaks about him in the middle of our passage in verses 8 through 10. And this is just vitally important. He starts in verse 8. After he tells us in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he's told us, you've all received the gift. And then he has this passage that may seem a little odd. Therefore it says, in verse 8, therefore it says, and he here quotes from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave his gifts to men. Psalm 68 was associated with the Old Testament festival known as Pentecost. During the time of Pentecost, people would uh, read this passage, Psalm 68. And of course, when we think of Pentecost today, we think of the great day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. On that day, we see that this passage was in fact fulfilled. That is the day that Jesus had been talking about. He had been telling his disciples, there is a day coming when I will leave you, but I will come back to you through the Spirit. And so on this day, as we read in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has ascended, yes, but he pours out his Spirit upon his people, gifting them, giving them the ability to do the work of ministry, being able to go out and do ministry of word and deed. And Paul takes that Psalm 68, says and declares that it's been fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and applies it here and says this is the way that he gave his gifts. When Jesus ascended, it talks here about how, uh, how he fills all things. How did he fill all things? He filled it through the Spirit. Look at verses 9 through 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that, but, he had, uh, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended for above all the, far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So it's, it's a parenthetic comment. In fact, it's put in parentheses in your translation. Paul is saying, hey, look, uh, this is Jesus who Psalm 68 is talking about. He's, he's explaining the text. He's saying Jesus, the one who already was in heaven, but when he took on human form, he descended into the lower regions. And he immediately explains the lower regions are the earth. I say that because some people sit there and say, oh, that means he descended into hell. And that has to do with some misunderstanding of what the Apostles' Creed means. We won't get into that at all uh, this morning. But, um, but he descended to the earth. And then it says he was here for his earthly ministry, but then he ascended in again. And it is from this ascending, going back to the Psalm 68 passage, when he ascended on high... He then led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, if you can skip that, he gave a host of captives, which kind of confuses us. You can understand, he went into heaven, and from there, he poured out his spirit, and he gave gifts to men. So what does that host of captives mean? Because, you know, that sounds a little different. Well, that here is beginning to use uh, military language. Before I explain it, I want to go back then and explain something here. Because this is absolutely crucial. Jesus is the giver of gifts. We've established that. He's the one who is the giver. He ascends into heaven. He gives the gifts. As uh, the Scottish commentator William Barclay once said, the ascension of Jesus meant not a Christ-deserted, but a Christ-filled world. The ascension of Jesus did not mean that Christ deserted the world, but that he filled the world with his spirit so he can get to everywhere. And he gave gifts. But the thing that we need to step away from here and see is that Jesus is not only the giver of gifts, but he is the ultimate gift himself. 
You see that? Jesus is not just the one who gives us stuff, but he himself is the prize. He is that ultimate gift. You see language actually all throughout Scripture like this. In, in John chapter 4, verse 10, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, he said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He refers to himself as the gift of God. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah is speaking about the coming Messiah, and he says, this is God speaking to the Messiah, I will give you as a light for the nations. So there's this recognition that this Messiah is a gift to the world. And John three sixteen, you all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This idea of Jesus himself is not just the giver of gifts, but he is the gift that has been given to us. And then we have to say, why? Why was it necessary for Jesus to have come down and descended to the lower regions, the earth? Why didn't he just stay in heaven? And why couldn't he have gifted us from up there and so on and so on? We have to understand one thing. Paul's talking about unity. That's been all throughout this passage. When God created us, we had unity with God. We had unity with one another. We had unity with the planet, with the creation. But our sin, our rebellion with God shattered that unity. It shattered our unity and our harmony with God. It shattered our unity and our harmony with other human beings. And it shattered in, uh, our unity and harmony with the creation. Our sin and rebellion shattered that unity. And so Jesus has been given as the one who has to come down and restore that unity, restore that harmony. And that's why Paul uses from Psalm 68 martial language, that is to say military language. He led a host of captives. You might say, well, that still doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But you see, in the ancient world, when you entered into combat, if you were victorious, if you were the general, you would fight your battle, Whoever is killed, they're killed. But then you would take the captives. You would take the, the surviving soldiers captive. You would take the loot and all the other things, military stuff that you can gather and whatever else. But then you would also take uh, the enemy soldiers captive. And you would return back to your nation, back to your city. And when you arrived, you would come in in this great celebration, this great procession. When you would come in, the general leading his troops and the troops leading behind them in chains, all these captives. And it was a glorious way of showing everybody we've been victorious. The city of Troy or the city of Rome or whatever the case may be. And look at our captive, our, our captured enemies. And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus in, a, in coming down, descending to earth, and ultimately ascending again after the cross. He won a great military victory. You might say, wait a minute. I don't read any of that in the Bible, but you see, the Bible is very clear, actually. Jesus is the greatest warrior who has ever lived. We love war movies. We love action movies. We love guys taking on uh, uh, bigger-than-life uh, than threats, Right? All you kids who've been watching the Avengers and fighting Thanos and he's going to wipe out half the universe and so on. And you have to overturn that and so on and so on. And uh, if you're in, uh, on the DC side, Justice League and Dark Side, he's going to destroy everything. Jesus is the greatest superhero, the greatest warrior who took on enemies, the greatest enemies that faced humanity and that faced all of creation. He conquered on the cross our sin. 
Our sin is the thing that separates us from God. It's the thing that shattered the unity that existed between God and us. It has what brought all the fallenness, all the disaster, and all the depravity into our world. And Jesus defeats sin on the cross. And through his glorious resurrection from the dead, he proves that he also defeated death. Death is the consequence of sin. And Jesus also defeats hell. Hell is the just condemnation. It's the result of our sin. And because of Jesus' great and wonderful military triumph, accomplished first by his living a perfect life that none of us is capable of living without sin, without rebelling, and then dying in our place, paying the price that we owe God for our condemnation. Jesus defeats sin, death, and hell. And so Paul uses this imagery of Jesus coming in as the victor, as the conqueror, leading behind him the captives, sin, death, and hell. And they've been conquered forevermore. The book of Revelation, you know, takes up that theme. What a wonderful image that is for us. And as he comes, in the old days, the Roman generals would take the war booty, the war loot, and they would give gifts to the people. I'm a magnanimous conqueror. What's different in this example is you would think that Jesus is now coming in to our city with the captives of sin, death, and hell, and he's going to give us gifts. Isn't that what it says? And Jesus pours out. Oh, no, don't you understand? We were the ones fighting against Jesus. Because there are other captives besides sin and death and hell. And the other captives were us. We were the rebels who fought against God. And he defeated us. But this is the grace and this is the love of God that when he captures us, it's okay because he captures us in his love. And what he does is he makes us his own. And rather than executing us like the Roman generals would do to their captives, they would bring them in and show everybody, look what we did, and now they execute him. He presents us to the Father who then makes us his children. Is that not grace? And it is then that he then gives us all these wonderful gifts as his own children and says, here, now you go and do to others as has been done to you. And don't you see how this all then fits into service? We've all been gifted. We've all been given these wonderful gifts. We who were the rebels, who were conquered and deserved death, but Jesus took that death in our place, and now he's made us the children of God, and he's gifted us and made us part of his body so that we can go and tell other people about the same grace that has been shown to us and that we too might bring them in and they might enjoy the fruits of being God's children. That's what it means to serve one another. That's what it means to love our neighbor. May God work that in us. May he build us up to full maturity. May we serve others in building us all up together until we become conformed to the image of the Son, that great Lord and Savior Jesus, who is our victor and our conqueror. Praise God that he conquered our hearts. Amen.